What a great youth band, yes. So proud of them. Been here since 7 a.m. Meanwhile, I overslept. <laughs> uh, Sunday, Easter Sunday was such a great, great morning worshiping with you all. Uh, of course, if you are a Washingtonian, then that was followed by a great day of lament on Monday. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I am, of course, talking about how we were supposed to coronate the greatest college basketball team of all time, undefeated Gonzaga. Instead, we just had to uh, suffer a, a defeat. And the result was Baylor was victorious, Gonzaga forever 31-1. and Still amazing. Still what an accomplishment by those students and nonetheless bittersweet. You don't have to be a fan of March Madness or college basketball or even have your bracket busted to understand what it means for Baylor to have won. The barrier of entry is very, very low to understand what it means that Baylor is victorious. It just means Baylor scored more points than Gonzaga. It's very John Madden-esque, right? Just more points have been scored in 40 minutes. But then there's layers to this, no? There's something more we can say about Baylor's victory, depending on which angle we're looking at it from. Strategically speaking, Baylor's victory says something about three-point shooting, offensive rebounding, and defense. Three things you will see from Nate Seeloff on a Monday night here, right? <laughs> Historically, man, unprecedented, yes? Baylor won their first championship in school history. They did it against an undefeated team, and they did it during a pandemic. For the first time ever, hopefully for the last time ever. <laughs> and there's so many other ways we can break down this victory, yes? We can look at the players, Davion Mitchell. We can look at the coach, Scott Drew. We can look at all the different facets of the game, and yet we can also say just at the most simple fundamental level, Baylor won because they scored more points. Similarly, the cross of Jesus Christ can be understood at a fundamental level. We don't have to go to seminary. We don't have to have a master's of divinity. We don't even have to be a Christian for all too long to understand, appreciate, and accept and embrace for ourselves the love of God in Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen. But there's also layers, right? There's a richness to plumb from this, right? Uh, the cross has many dimensions that are political, spiritual, historical. And it has much to say about atonement and ransom and forgiveness. And the list there goes on and on as well. And this morning, I just want to look at one of those many dimensions, just one of those many aspects of what it means that Jesus died and rose from the grave. And today, I, I want to look at this dimension by looking at the passion narrative we find in the Gospel of Mark. And let me help set the scene for you Jesus and his disciples have just finished a Passover meal, and they head off to this place called Gethsemane, and Jesus is anguished, and he's grieved, and so he tells his disciples, hey, keep awake, and I'm going to go and pray. As you all know, the disciples all fall asleep, a problem I wish I had on youth retreats, but the disciples all fall asleep, and they stay that way until a crowd of people armed with swords and clubs come to arrest 
Jesus. And this is where we find our passage this morning. Mark chapter 14, verse 46 through 52. If you are able to this morning, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were abandoned? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And all of them deserted Jesus and fled. A certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Jess. You may be seated. That was the most confused thanks be to God I've heard. Uh, (laughs) So what's going on in this passage? I mean, if you've read the Gospel of Mark, then you know the beats of the story. Yes, Jesus is in Gethsemane. Jesus prays. Disciples fall asleep. Crowd of people come. They arrest Jesus. One of the disciples, in other Gospels we're told it's Peter, cuts off the servant's ear. Jesus rebukes Peter. And then all the disciples run away, and that's the end of the story. Except in Mark's gospel, we get two more additional verses. We get the Snyder Cut, yes? And in those verses, we find out about a young man who gets caught, and he runs away, and he leaves behind a linen cloth. And this passage is so bizarre, and it has confounded scholars over the years, and they have been wondering, what in the world do we do with this? Who is this young man? And some have made suggestions about how this young man is a uh, cameo from Mark, like Mark is putting himself into his own story, sort of how Stan Lee puts himself into his own stories, yes? <laughs> or this is, this is Mark talking about Adam. This is an allusion to Adam and Eve in the garden. Or this is an allusion to Joseph in the book of Genesis. Or this is an allusion to baptism. Or perhaps this is a secret disciple that Jesus has been telling secrets to. And for whatever reason, he just pops up out of nowhere. But this morning, if you've checked out of all the theories, and don't worry, we're not going to spend the next 10 to 15 minutes talking about all these theories. Because I don't think... That's what Mark is trying to do here in this passage. I think Mark has something really important to say here. He didn't just write verse 51 through 52 because he wanted us to speculate or to guess or to try to figure out who this man could be. But Mark wrote these verses for the edification of the church to encourage the people of God both back then and this morning. So how do, we, how do we begin to approach this text? I think one of the best ways is to understand how Mark writes his Gospels. If you're a part of high school Bible study, you're all groaning now because you've heard this multiple times. But there is this technique that he uses where he'll bring in a topic, an idea, a concept, a phrase, then he'll get away from it, and then he'll come right back to it. So it's topic, something else. Topic, it creates a sandwich. Right, Mark and sandwiches. Let me give you an example of this. In Mark 11, they, the disciples, and Jesus come to a fig tree. 
and there is no fruit on the fig tree, and so Jesus curses the fig tree, right? So fig tree. And then there's a story about the temple, and Jesus goes into the temple, and we all know what happens. He tosses over the tables. He releases the animals. It's just complete chaos. And then right after that, Mark brings us back to the fig tree. And all the disciples are amazed and in wonder because the fig tree is dead. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. Mark and sandwich. And in this instance, notice how the fig tree is commenting on the temple. Right? In the same way that the fig tree is without fruit and under the judgment of God, the temple has failed to produce fruit. The temple has failed to shape and encourage the people of God, and therefore the temple is also under the judgment of Jesus. So whenever Mark brings up a topic, an idea, something very, very stark and different, the, the question we need to ask ourselves is, does Mark ever bring back this topic again? If Mark went away from it, will he ever bring it back? And when it comes to the young man, the question is, will we ever see the young man again later in the Gospel of Mark? Hopefully Claude. <laughs> now, in English, it's not very clear if we do, but in the Greek, there is something really fascinating going on here. In Greek, young man is neoniskas, which has no special meaning. It just means young man. Not remarkable at all. But what is strange and interesting is that of the 11,304 Greek words you will find in the Gospel of Mark, there are only two occurrences of the word neoniskas, or young man. The first occurrence is in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 through 52, which you're all very familiar with by now, the young man who runs away. The second occurrence is in Mark chapter 16, verse 5. Let's turn there together for a moment. Mark 14, I mean Mark 16, verse 5 through 7. As they, the women, entered the tomb, they saw a Neoniskos, a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they led him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. If you stuck with me for this long, then here's the payoff. If it's not a coincidence that Mark has a Neoniskos in Mark 14, and then all of a sudden a Neoniskos in Mark 16, this is habit for him. And if the same young man in Mark 14 is the same young man at the tomb of Jesus' resurrection, then what we have here isn't just a nice little sandwich. What we have here is a remarkable transformation of the young man. The young man goes from being naked and shamed and full of fear to what? Dressed. Honored, seated at the right side, and now boldly proclaiming to the women that Jesus is alive. So something must have happened in Mark 14, between Mark 14 and Mark 16, for this young man to have been transformed. Something happened in Mark 15 to change the entire trajectory of this young man's destiny. So what is that thing? What happens in Mark 15? According to Mark, the death of Jesus on the cross. 
And if you take Jesus from Mark 15 and compare him to the young man in Mark 16, you see two different trajectories. Jesus is shamed. The young man is honored. Jesus is stripped of his clothes. The young man is dressed in a white robe. And while Jesus hangs on the cross and all the sins of the world are put upon him in the darkness of Good Friday, the young man stands boldly proclaiming in the light of Resurrection Sunday. What happened to the young man was that Jesus did something. And notice here, the young man does absolutely nothing. He pops up in Mark 14. He pops up again in Mark 16. Jesus does all the work in Mark chapter 15. Three months ago, or was it two months ago? I'm looking at Danica. Two months? Three months? We went to an escape room as a youth group, and I got to participate in one with our 10th graders, and the theme of that escape room was called Cell Block 12. And the gist of it is we're all criminals, and we've all been arrested into individual cells, and we all have to do our best to work as a team to get out. And so we're all rummaging through our individual cells. I'm looking under pillows and chairs and whatnot. And one of our leaders, Amanda, who also works at our preschool here, she starts shouting, hey, Joe, right outside your cell, there's a cabinet. Take a look at the cabinet. And so I reach out of the cell, and I open up the cabinet, and in the back of the cabinet are some keys. And all the students start cheering because we're going to get out. Joe's going to grab those keys, except there was one big issue. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, my arm span, uh, it's not Gonzaga worthy. We have some problems here, and I'm the only one closest to this cabinet. So I'm reaching, and I'm stretching, and I'm trying my best to grab those keys. And at first, the students are going, yay, Joe, yay, Joe, and then they all start to kind of be discouraged, and the voices start to fade away when they realize Oh, no. His arms aren't going to grow anytime soon. We're going to be stuck here for the next hour. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, there's so many parents and grandparents I'm going to have to pay back. $15 each. We're in trouble with the youth budget. Uh, So you might be wondering, did we ever get out? And we did get out. We did. We're here, aren't we? And the reason why we got out was because a student by the name of Maria found a metal bar. Now, whether she broke this metal bar or found it is not something I know, but she found it. (laughs) That's what matters. And she tossed it over, and I quickly took that metal bar, and I grabbed those keys, and we were all free. Not because of something I could do. Not because I had an extraordinary wingspan, but because help came from the outside. Here's the point I want to get back to. You and I, we are not so different from the young man that we find in the Gospel of Mark. We too have tried to follow Jesus only to fail for our various reasons. We all have also fallen short of the glory of God. And many of us, if we're willing to admit it, have left behind more than us a linen cloth or a linen garment to get away from the life and the vocation Jesus calls us to. 
And in choosing good and evil for ourselves and choosing to choose our own lives for ourselves and not follow Jesus, we have resigned ourselves to a life captive to sin, stripped of its clothing, robbed of its dignity, and relegated to the darkness of our own Gethsemanes. But what does Paul say in Romans? I believe it's the 8th chapter. What does he say? He says, it was while we were powerless while we were shamed, while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were naked, while our arms were just too short, while we were utterly helpless, God was able. God was faithful. God's arm was mighty to save, and he saw us, and he saved us, and helped came from the outside so that you and I can say this morning, while we have no idea who the young man is, it doesn't matter who the young man is. Because what's more important is what happened to the young man. Because what happened to the young man happened to me. What Jesus did for the young man, he did for me. He dressed me. He honored me. He saw me. He forgave me. He took my place and the keys of the kingdom that I just could not reach has now freed me. And I'm not who I was yesterday, but I am who I am today because help came from the outside. Amen. But then there's just another part I want to reflect on before we end this morning. Notice what the young man does with his freedom. We don't find him at the marketplace. We don't find him at home just doing whatever he wants. But at the first opportunity, we find him standing at the empty tomb, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and liberating the women from their grief. I think the young man understood something about freedom that you and I should learn and understand today, and it's this. Jesus didn't just free us from something. He freed us for something. Jesus freed us from faithlessness so that we might have freedom for faithfulness. Freedom from mendacity so that we might have freedom for truth-telling. Freedom from a scarcity mindset so that we might have freedom for a generosity mindset. Freedom from the darkness of our Gethsemanes and freedom for new life and new possibilities in Galilee. The keys that you hold in your hand, MVC, are not for you alone, but for the world that God so loved that he gave his only son. The freedom that you have, NBC, is not for us to do it as we will, but is meant to compel us to stand at the empty tombs in the world so that when people come to us broken down by grief, burdened by their lives, and anxious for their future, when they show up to the tombs, to the places of despair, and the places where all hope is exhausted, and they expect to grieve there, There, the church will be standing. There, we will be standing to proclaim to them, hey, I know you came to grieve, but you're in the wrong place because Jesus is alive and he's not here. But he's gone ahead of you to your Galilee, to your Puyallups, to your Rentons, to your Tacomas, to your Seattles, to your Spokanes. Go and see and be free today. If you look at your chairs this morning, 
or if you're on the live stream, sorry, there's nothing on your chairs. But <laughs> this morning, if you're here in the sanctuary, you will find there a key. And I don't want this key to remind you of how short my arms are. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is this. My prayer for you as you go over the next uh, days and weeks and months is that as you look at this key, this key will remind you that when you were unable, God was able. When you were faithless, God was faithful. And God has dressed you. God has seen you. God has forgiven you. And God loves you. May these keys remind you that God has freed you from a life captive to sin and death. And God has freed you for a new life and a new vocation to bring as much generosity, goodness, justice, and love into the world that God loves. Amen? Please pray with me. Holy God, you are good. We thank you that when we were sinners, when we were helpless, when we were naked, you saw us and you dressed us, you honored us, and you loved us. God, help us to remember that our freedom is not just from something, but it is a freedom for, a freedom to follow you, a freedom to stand at the empty tombs and to proclaim hope into the world. We ask that we remember your love this morning and that might compel us to love this world that you have created. We ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.